Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Christian and Alex Giebert. Today's moment comes from the Crucifixus movement of the Mass in B minor. He was crucified also for us. Bach is the most universal of artists. What speaks through his works is pure religious emotion. And this is one and the same in all men in spite of the national and religious partitions in which we are born and bred. It is the emotion of the infinite and the exalted, for which words are always an inadequate expression and that can find proper utterance only in art. For me, Bach is the greatest of preachers. Those words written by Charles-Marie Vidor, an author but more known as an organist and composer, in the preface to the German edition of the Albert Schweitzer book J.S. Bach. And he was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. Schweitzer writes, the credo is a hard nut for a composer to crack. If ever there was a text put together without any idea of its being set to music, it is this. But never has the difficulty of writing music for the credo been so completely overcome as in this of Bach's. So that quote from Albert Schweitzer, he's talking about how the text is, it's just the creed, you know? It's, he says, if ever there was a text put together without any idea of its being set to music, it is this, in which the Greek theologians have laid down their correct and dry formulas for the conception of the Godhead of Christ. I mean, isn't that true, Christian? Like, this is the kind of thing you would recite in church, not the kind of thing you hear musically very often. No, unless... 
you're a student of like old renaissance and medieval sure. choral music i guess and that's the point that schweitzer's making is actually a lot of composers did set this to music but his point in his estimation is that they did so unsuccessfully because to cram it all into a short piece of music doesn't do justice to the poetic possibilities even though this is like a theological statement it's not meant as poetry schweitzer makes the point in this book over and over again about bach being a pictorial composer and that he was better than any other of the time at expressing what's actually going on in the text in the music we've talked about this so many times on this podcast and also it's the era he lived in that helped him out and bach was the best at this but bach wrote music in the baroque era and in baroque style you could be very expressive with your text setting and that wasn't really true of the few hundreds of years before him Right. Or the hundreds of years before 1600 about. And in those austere, grand works of the Renaissance and late medieval period, a big chunk of text like the Credo was just a big chunk of text. And they didn't necessarily sound like you were twisting and turning through all of the beliefs of the Christian church, including Christ's death and resurrection and then the resurrection of the dead and all this very evocative stuff. Yeah. And yet there's the whole story right there. Even though it's a confession of faith and isn't meant to be poetic, it is kind of a form of storytelling. I mean, if you're saying this, you are going through the story of Jesus's birth, life, and death as part of the creed. And here, on this Holy Week, we're looking at Crucifixus, which is the movement about Jesus's crucifixion. Just like a lot of the music from the Mass in B minor, Bach has taken this musical material from a previous cantata and reworked it with this Latin text to be part of the Mass in B minor text. In this case, part of the creed, right? The Crucifixus movement. But the music originally comes from a cantata, BWV 12, written in the Weimar period of Bach's career, which is the earlier stuff. Cantata is called Weinen, Klagen, Sorgen, Sagen, meaning weeping, lamenting, worrying, fearing. The music certainly evokes that. What do you hear coming from these instruments? Sad violins, sad flutes. Lamenting. Lamenting. A lament bass. A ground bass, which is another term for a pasacalia, which is something we spoke about on episode 5 of our first season. That was more than a year ago, Christian. Yeah. <laughs> a repeated bass line. Yeah. A short and repeated bass line, but the stuff above it changing. Right. So, in a way, it's similar to the Chacon movement of the violin partita number two, which we talked about in the first episode of season two. But this one, the bass, 
has this four measure pattern and it stays that way the whole time. Well, mostly the whole time, but we'll see. <laughs> but listen to that repeating bass line. What is striking about that bass line, Christian? I know that's kind of a subjective question. There's a couple things, I think, but... Well, for one thing, it is entirely chromatic as it goes down. That's right. That's the right answer. <laughs> and it's, it's not at all strange for a passacaglia that's kind of sad and in a minor key to have a descending bass line down from the tonic pitch, but it's often just bum, 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 and so on. Like a hit the road jack type of bass line. Yeah, but that is, that is what this is, but it just with, with extra stuff. Yeah, it's all everything filled in in between. Yeah. There's this sort of cyclical thing like we talked about in the Chacon episode. There's a cyclical thing that happens with with these kinds of forms. It's not just that it just repeats, but also that it feels like it never stops going down, right? Because there's only one moment in the pattern where the note jumps up, but it's on an octave and it's not really that noticeable. So there's this auditory illusion of the music just continuing to descend without mm, ever going point. up yeah and it's talking about his crucifixion but also the last line of it is his burial right and was buried and we heard at the end those voice parts get buried and the sopranos especially which we are used to hearing up high they end very low. They end below middle C, which is pretty unusual for soprano. Very low voice parts at the end. But I don't want to brush by the rest of the interest here. We talked, <laughs> I said sad flutes and sad violins, but let's be a little more specific here. What is happening with the flutes and the violins orchestrationally in this? Let's listen again to that four-measure intro before the voices enter. Listen for violins, listen for flutes. Did you catch that? Rhythmically, what's happening with violins and flutes there? There are three beats per measure. One, two, three. And the bass is going one and two and three and. So if there are three beats per measure, first beat is violins, second beat is flutes, third beat is both. Yes, that is, that is basically what it is. Although it's also the way it comes across is that each each of those instrument groups 
has two notes in a row that just kind of overlap. Right, that's true. And this is a different orchestration than the source material because he reused this. Right, and from that cantata, which we mentioned, um, I didn't say this, but he, he made several small edits to the music, not the least of which is the ending, which is completely different. In the original material, it ends on the same key that it started on, which is kind of what you'd expect. It actually has a whole separate middle section and then returns to this material and then ends. But here we just have this repeating bass line, but then in that last repetition, the ending is different. and ends on a different note, a major note, a low note on the word he was buried. So why is that major, Christian? Why is that major? Why is that end that way? Well, it's all context because he rewrote the ending to set this yeah. up for what comes next, which we'll talk about next week. <laughs> we will. We better save that. This week is Holy Week. Next week is Easter. So as we eagerly await Easter and eagerly await what we're going to talk about next week, I think it's worth jumping back and talking about the entrance of the vocalists on the word crucifixus. Let's listen to that. This is on the fifth measure after the little intro. So the voice parts entered staggered. The soprano started. Then alto. Then tenor. Then bass. Now it's out of order. The tenor will come in. Now the soprano, but lower in her range. Now the bass. Alto. Etc. And he keeps on staggering these entrances. Each time he's doing this, and each one of these repetitions, he's increasing the amount of voices that are singing every measure until all four voices are singing in harmony finally. But that doesn't happen for another several measures. A lot of chromatic motion here. We mentioned in a previous episode, chromatic motion meaning colorful motion, I guess would be the way to literally say that, but it's using half steps, which are the smallest division of the scale. And typically if you're going up or down in a chromatic fashion, it's going to sound very twisty and pained and unusual. It does not sound like a happy or even like a sad normal scale. Unnatural, you might say. Yeah. And and Baroque composers used it for extreme expression. It was used in the most in the cases where you needed the most anguish or sadness, especially when it's going down like this baseline does. Yeah. Like just listen to this one moment here where the soprano is singing the words pro nobis sub pontio pilato and on the words sub pontio pilato it just keeps on going down chromatically oh, 
And so is the bass line, right? During that section. So he has to work it so that that's going chromatically with the bass. There's so much motion pulling, pulling down, and yet there are also these moments that kind of hopefully lift up only to be pulled back down. Christian, you have a great moment that you love coming up right here. And that was it. It was this tenor moment, this tenor note right here. What do you love so much about that? This is a spot that he edited to make even weirder in the Mass in B minor. It wasn't this strange. We just noticed Alex in the yeah. BWV12. We just, yeah, we just compared these. This had been a while since I'd heard that one. So if that tenor was not singing that note that he inches up to when he finally gets to cruci fi and he get, lands on the C natural, and if that wasn't there, the chord would be quite ordinary. But because that's there, the harmony that results, the vertical harmony that results is kind of incomprehensible and doesn't really work, kind of violates some of the, the rules of harmonic progression in a way that makes music theorists very excited and interested. <laughs> what does it say about us, Christian, that we a lot of these moments that we like are when it are when the rules get broken and <laughs> music theory rules get broken? I don't know. <laughs> well the great thing about it is that the way Bach does it is always so carefully controlled. Anyone can break a music theory rule on purpose for fun, maybe even for text effect. But the way Bach does it it's it's so rare that when he does do it, because he's he had such a mastery of harmonic technique, just like any anyone, any of his contemporaries who are serious composers. Right. It's not a thing that's special to him. Right. But he had such an exploratory spirit, and that was that's what's special to him. And that's why this this one tenor note that just lands wrong and upsets everything else reframes this whole chord and makes something much stranger. Yeah. And uh, it is it is a very weird harmony and it's a little bit incomprehensible. Well, yeah, and it's also the first time that the chord that lands on the beginning of the of the pattern is not an E minor chord. We're in the key of E minor and every time it cycles around it goes back to E minor, right? Except not every time. And what Bach does is he subverts that a lot later, but the first few are E minor. So they land. Check this out, Alex. Ooh, what, this is a harmonic analysis. <laughs> yeah. So, so in a in a graduate seminar, I had All to right. I had to do this chart where we took the ground bass. Hey, this is what I'm talking about right now. Yeah, and we you could do basically a two dimensional chart every time in the pattern that like that first um, E happens. What's the chord every yeah. time? That first D sharp, that first, then the D natural, and then the C sharp, and then the C natural. As it goes down and down and down, Bach does not harmonize it the same way. How different are all of the different harmonizations? How many? How many are the same, and how many are different? And Alex, you pointed out that, like any other pattern, it begins with a beginning stable note. But this is the first time that that note is harmonized differently. This bass note is harmonized differently. And so therefore, it doesn't sound like the beginning anymore. And that happens three other times where yeah. it exceeds its four bar phrase length. And it almost sounds like eight or 12 because 
it's harmonically ambiguous and doesn't go back. Yeah. It's a trick that he's pulling. Even though he's, his bass instrument, it, his bass instrument is going back to Do, you know, his other instruments are nowhere near Do and a chord that matches it. And so that gives us a prolonged feeling of strange unhookedness or unhinged an unhinged quality yeah and i'm looking at this chart that i was uh, required to make for the part of this seminar and the bass note c natural on beat three during the ground bass pattern mm-hmm. is harmonized seven different ways i mean he didn't have to do that yeah any other composer might have done it two ways maybe maybe three but bach went out of his way to try to find and tinker with interesting harmonies that would all combine to make this thing as unsettling and sad and dark as it could be. Yeah. It was always about the text for him. It was always about the artistry of it. I really love the Bach pieces that go that go dark, right? And it, they don't all do that because sometimes the text that it's setting is not like that. And you know, just wait for next, just wait for next week. But this is a great example of that. Christian, I, what I like about that chord you just, you, you mentioned is that it is kind of like, kind of feels like almost a major chord because it has the same notes of E major, but it has an added C and it gives it a lot of like anxiety to the note. You know what I mean? Like it's on edge. Like yeah. It, it does not sound settled. And it's that tenor note on crucifixus, it's a long note on fi. It's too long to be a non-chord note, you know, non-chord tone. Yeah, and if you look at, I love looking, whenever we see weird chords, I love looking at the figured bass that, that's written here in Bach's own hand. On this one. What does that one say? It's what you think it would be. It says six, five, and then a sharp sign, which means that above the E, you have a six, which is C, five, which is, it's fantastic. B, and a sharp sign, which is the, the G sharp and you know like listeners if that doesn't make any sense to you just suffice it to say that that's a weird thing to see in a figured bass and it's cool it sounds it <laughs> yeah. sounds to my ear to to a modern ear as a C augmented yeah chord with a major seventh with an E on the bottom see to me it sounds like an E augmented chord but it just also has the B up there but it's above which which is and it also has to do with the voicing and we've talked about voicing a little bit in, uh, in these episodes, it just means how you're going to lay out the chord, where you're going to put those notes, which octaves. And in this, you know he's always going to put that pattern, that repeating bass pattern. It's always going to be below, which gives him the latitude to put on all these interesting weird harmonies. Because like you said, Christian, he, he goes out of his way to make interesting harmonizations of this. And he knows he can, not just because he's setting the text well, but because if you're going to set yourself this limitation of the bass doing this it's all the more reason why you can go crazy with the other stuff like that that's the thing about composing right we talked about it in episode four of the first season when we talked about the magnificat and the limitations that were imposed upon bach by using the trumpets which because of the way they were back in his day he had to use them in very certain specific ways right Mm -hmm. we talked about limitations being actually good for the creative spirit we talked about limitations causing you to be able to work inside a certain box and figure out interesting things to do within that. That, But, you know, think of like a child with a sandbox or something. The child has to play in the sandbox. That's the rule. That's what the child is doing for the next 20 minutes at recess. Then the child uses their imagination to come up with all kinds of interesting mm. things to do in Good the sandbox. Analogy. 
Yeah, the Pasakalia, the ground-based pattern is the sandbox. The fact that yeah, you're stuck in that. He has to do it, and he, he must stay in that, in those confines. And that's why he comes up with so many interesting ways to mess around inside those confines, like this one that, that we're talking about, which, by the way, does it does resolve to something normal. If it didn't, if it didn't, it wouldn't sound like Baroque music. But yeah, right, um, right. it does, on the second beat, it does start to make sense. But the point is, Alex, we've done three episodes now, including this one on basically uh, ground basses, I think. Mm-hmm. We did an organ Pasakalia in C minor, talking about the famous violin, Shikun, and then right. we have this one. All three famous Pasakalias by Bach. I think it's fair to say that some of his best, absolute best work is his Pasakalias, which are rare. Yeah, there aren't that many. There are only a few, and when they happen, oh man, are they so good. I don't know why he didn't do more. There's a good handful, but I mean, it's not like there's as me- uh, nearly as many as there are fugues or right. something like that. So I don't think he was quite as fascinated with the form, you know, as he maybe, was with fugue. Maybe. Oh, I mean, yeah, who knows? But anyway, these times when it lands on the E, but it's not E minor, but it does something different. I mean, this one is tame compared to what happens later. So this one, it's like it was set up with a dominant seventh chord. So at least it feels like it's going there. But later, there's some other things happening, <laughs> some very different things happening. Yeah, which make so, it sound like it's not even... Yeah, so, so check out this one. This one is the sixth into the seventh. You can check your harmonic analysis to see if I'm doing this right. It's like the B chord that leads up into the seventh one is a major chord like you think but then it bends minor before it hits and then when it does hit the e then the e is major so really what that what's happening there is we're feeling like we're heading toward a major which we do on the second beat now we're all over the place we're not where we were we didn't land on the beat like we were supposed to and it doesn't it does what you said christian it it makes you feel kind of unmoored now that pattern is starting to lose its quality the pattern hasn't actually changed in the bass at all mm-hmm. but the stuff going on up there has recontextualized it and it doesn't sound normal anymore yeah and in music theory sense it has modulated or briefly modulated at this point yeah and this is a, this is a master class in yeah. these these brief modulations because it's it, studying this piece is absolutely like getting really in, in depth with the music theory will be a master class for that. So we're coming up on my favorite moment. We just hit this cadence at the end of one of these, these things where all the voices actually end up together singing the word est at the end of et sepultus est, which means and he was buried. And on the end of that word, they're about to repeat a little bit more text. They stop together. And then we have a similar thing to what happened at the beginning, which is that the soprano enters alone, then comes the alto, then tenor, then bass. But this time, they all add to each other And listen to the twisty nature of this melody that happens with the soprano, and then later the alto. Whoa, yeah. And then there.
there. We just got to a new one, but it didn't even, it didn't sound like a new iteration. It just sounded like it was going somewhere else. To me, this took me like, you know, when I was learning this piece and really getting in depth in this piece in, in college, this section right here would like throw me. It would make me think that Bach had changed tack and he was done with the Pascali and he was doing something else. And it's only after like listening closely that I'm like, wait, no, it's still doing it. It's just the, still going. Yeah, it's just that and the bass thing's still going, but it's totally it's totally recontextualized now. It's that he's doing all of this with just harmony and, and counterpoint. The harmony of counterpoint, I mean, basically. Which is so fascinating, because that's not how modern music is at all. Yeah. We do things with different aspects of music now. We don't... We, we talked about this in another Pasacalia. I, I think we come back to this idea a lot on this podcast. But what we are able to do now with all different kinds of sounds at our fingertips, Bach was not. And he did orchestrate timbre, interestingly, in a limited way. But nothing like what we have available now. But what he had was the, that we mostly don't have anymore is the technical skill of harmony to such a degree like this, where like you said, Alex, you can enter a moment of Bach completely unaware that he is even pulling a harmonic trick like this on you, but he is following his own rules. He is just so experimental with how far away he's willing to go, and yet he's still in the sandbox. He's, he, but his imagination has run so wild not even recognizable as a sandbox anymore yeah the imagination has gone so far that it's, it's pretty stunning and then we're coming up to my favorite moment here we come into the b part you're going to think it's going to be a b major to lead into e minor this is coming into the second to last iteration but it just goes to b minor which is a lot more forlorn sounding and it doesn't want to lead then it leads to E, but it's not. It's actually a C chord and an inversion, and this is this is fairly simple compared to some of the other stuff we just talked about, at least harmonically, but let's listen again. Right there, it's the soprano. So here how that soprano is staying on a high note that's in high E. To me, it seems like it wants to go E, D sharp, and then E, like this, but instead, E, D goes down a little more, and then this sort of crying note here on passus, right, suffered, soprano hits that C. The interpretation here by Netherlands Bach Society is my favorite, I think of any recording I've heard of this, of this moment, because they do actually start this with some force, you know, with that first crucifixus. But here, it's like they suddenly get a little bit quieter and it gets, it's, it's angry, right? Before this, it's angry. Hmm. Crucified by Pontius Pilate. And then here we get to suffered. Comes very tender here. And this chord, it's just, if we're talking, I, I love complicated stuff. The stuff we talked about is complicated. But this, this is simple. This is one thing. This is almost a minor chord. It's just that the fifth of it is moved up just a half step. Mm -hmm. It is a an inverted chord. Yeah, and it, it ends up being an inverted six chord, you can call it, an inverted C chord. And the 
dichotomy between the minor one chord and the inverted six chord like that is one tiny note. But listen to how listen to how the character changes. To me, the second one is more hopeful. It is actually major, even though it's in an inversion, so it sounds like it's almost minor. But it has something going on, right? It's trying to rise. It's trying to trying to rise, right? Yeah. And also, it, it puts us in a completely different harmonic space. It and its surrounding context right before and after. Yeah. Makes especially. us not in E minor anymore. Yeah, especially that B minor before. Yeah. That's that's what sets you up for that. And it, it, to me, it's like it's like if it was like if it was going to end that first way that I thought it was going to this phrase, then it would sound in line with Baroque harmony. But but the way that it does, it like it suddenly sounds more ancient, you know? Mm, yeah, it's it would have sounded more final. Yeah, and, and and in a music theory sense, it would have been it would have been more final. Yeah, it would have been more complete. And the way it is now, it's kind of obscure. I mean, I guess it's sort of in, it went to G major, but never has a, that chord. It's just far away chords in another key. Yeah. Basically the the three of, but like you said, you just, you just um, hinted at something that it was my big revelation about this when I was studying this more recently. You said that it hints at at G major, Mm -hmm. like the four, six of G. Yeah, the C. Pretty soon, C major pretty soon, we're coming into the surprise ending of this, which is on G major. So I think this actually sets that up. Yep. And in Bach, you know, like we said, he wrote this originally with a different ending. But I think when he wrote this ending, that's why he did it that way. You know, it needed to it needed to fall down. These pitches needed to fall down and down and down and down into that G chord. And he knew he could get there because of this, this particular cadence that happens right there on the forty-fifth measure of this. Yeah, and, and that—that that is my moment. That's my favorite moment. And to drive the point home, Alex, about how simple the actual chord is. This is a C major chord. This chord is like the one you learn on the piano, C, yeah. E, and G, except yeah. the E is on the bottom. But it's just all about the context of how it forces this otherwise sad key into something just ever so slightly hopeful. Yep. We get the final text and was buried. We can hear that bass line change just a little. Actually on that second to last one there's a little extra turn. wild harmonic device being used there as well but that's but that makes sense to me there because he's actually kind of it's like he kind of couldn't resist making a final cadence in the e minor right so he does it there but then he gives us an ending after right the one we said the surprise ending Mm -hmm. so we get these last few measures really dramatic alex the more we explore the rhetoric behind this the more i'm starting to think of this as like a study in inversions not yeah not just music theory chord inversions but just like flipping expectations on on its head but also chord inversions like we're saying at the very end here we've got this almost grotesquely inverted chord on the first syllable of sepultus of the last sepultus yeah 
I called that a German augmented sixth, but it's an, in, I guess, third inversion. Diminished tenth, I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> it's just insane. Whatever you want to call it, it's, it is, and, and it, it's cool to listen to those outer voices pull in, right? They do. The soprano, has a C, the soprano has an E flat, and the bass has a C sharp, and they move in. It is what you said, Alex, it's just, inver it's just inverted. Yeah, right, right. And the fact that it ends not where it began. Just that simple fact is unusual for a Baroque composition. 99% of them go back and somehow end in the tonality that they started in. Yeah. And he, he's set a precedent for that in the Mass in B minor a little bit so far. He's done a couple of movements that have done that. But here, as we've said before, and as we started this episode saying, there's a textual pictorial reason for this Jesus was crucified he was buried the movement ends with him buried Schweitzer's book has this to say about the crucifixus it's formed from the chromatic motive of grief the choral writing is soft and vaporous so that the inexpressible sadness of the harmonies has a touch of the super-terrestrial and the transfigured in it, as if the composer had had in his mind the it is finished of the dying Lord. I just keep coming back to that quote from Vidor from the preface to that book. said Bach is the greatest of preachers. He said, it is the emotion of the infinite and the exalted for which words are always an inadequate expression and that can find proper utterance only in art. Bach is on the whole the most universal of artists. What speaks through his works is pure religious emotion. Now, here is Alex's moment from the Crucifixus. If this introduction to a musical moment has inspired you to hear the rest of the Mass in B minor, please see the link in the episode description to see the performance by the Netherlands Box Society. Do you want to hear our new episodes as we release them? Find us on your podcast app and hit subscribe. Leave us a review and a rating, too, on iTunes. It helps us out a lot. We could use some more reviews and ratings. Yeah. All right, Christian. We just covered the Crucifixus movement from the Mass in B minor. And what are we doing next week? Well, the only logical thing would be to go on to what's next. Et resurrexit from the Mass in B minor in celebration of Easter. Until next time, enjoy those moments.